Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. This week, President Biden signs a bill aimed at protecting the rights of gay Americans. The Respect for Marriage Act is an effort to protect marriage after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. In his concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas called on the court to reconsider decisions that legalized same-sex marriage. But does the bill truly protect the right to marry? Meanwhile, emotional testimony on Capitol Hill about the rise in anti-LGBTQ hate crimes. Rhetoric from politicians, religious leaders, and media outlets is at the root of the attacks, like at Club Q, and it needs to stop now. Plus, a local Washingtonian jailed for making threats, some of them anti to members of Congress, and Elon Musk uses Twitter to silence some of his critics. All of that coming up this hour, but first, as we head towards the new year, we figured we'd take a look back at this past year, and there was a major change in the city of Seattle. Bruce Harrell was elected mayor after a hard-fought campaign against former president of the Seattle City Council, Lorena Gonzalez. Bruce Harrell himself is also a former president of the Seattle City Council, and Seattle City politics can get kind of dirty at times, but we figured we'd chat with the mayor about his first year in office, and he joins us now. And first off, Mayor Bruce Harrell, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Excited to be here. I guess the first question I would ask is, what really surprised you about moving into this new role as mayor coming from that council background? In terms of surprises, and let's, let, let I remind you that I was mayor before, Jeff. Let's not let's put that into the That's record. That's true. Uh, yes, it was five days, <laughs> but on this second go-around, um, what surprised me was the need to rebuild relationships and sort of the rate of activity sort of alluded to in politics. And that would be, you know, my relationship with the city council, the school district, the county and state and federal government, um, nonprofits, philanthropies, um, that where the all of the forums that I'd gone into, I had to rebuild trust and a working collaborative relationship. And that is not taken for granted. And I had to build my own team. You know, I had to look for the right kinds of people. So I I, what surprised me was sort of the need to um, relook with fresh eyes on all the things we want to accomplish in this city. One of the things political pundits have said is that the position of mayor for City of Seattle is kind of a, a dead end job. Not a lot of people have gone on to larger and bigger positions, for example, governor or something like that. Um, and certainly over the last couple of years, we've had, uh, as you mentioned, you were mayor previous for five days. That was when we had the scandal with Ed Murray. We had uh, a number of mayors uh, in that interim there. And then, of course, we had uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin. She only served one term. Um, what's your take on, on the position here? Because it, it, it seems to be uh, certainly a thankless job. Well, Jeff, that's a, that's a fair question. I had a great conversation with three-term Mayor Charlie Royer last week. <clears throat> and quite candidly, I just don't think about it. I, I don't think about the uh, some of the issues that the previous mayors faced and what happened to them. I think about this city, and, and I know it sounds a little corny, Jeff, but I've never lived my life that way. I don't worry about any losses in the past or um, <clears throat> what the city's gone through. I have to be fully present and build sustainable change for the future. So I just don't worry about it, and that's that's my energy level. And, my wife has been stuck with me for many decades. She knows that's just how I operate. So I, I acknowledge that it's been a challenged, challenging position. But who cares? Let's move forward and rebuild this city, Jeff. What has been the biggest challenge you faced in your first year? Well, again, I, I'll go back to the intro. Uh, it was walking into a situation where there weren't internal systems in place to get things done. 
that I think there was mistrust within even my own departments and I had to pull them all together when I created this one Seattle agenda. Uh, these were not words. This is our core value on how we move together and we have to take urgent action. So I said, okay, we're gonna come together, but understand, I'm not gonna have my departments pointing the finger at each other. So when we talked about founding the unified care team, we're talking about our homelessness action plan to show the correlation between people who are hurting, crime, people who need treatment. We put it all out there and it resulted in actions at Woodland Park, it resulted in actions in 12th and Jackson. And putting these internal systems together and being able to be nimble, which is sort of an athletic term often to think about how you, you do the best you can with the resources. And I have to remind many people that I'm working with a budget that I inherited. This, um, you know, I came in with sort of game plans. When you look at why I sort of un, undid the parking enforcement officers from from uh, one department, uh, SDOT, and put them back in the police department, or I looked at City Hall Park, there was a deal that I inherited, and I undid that deal because I want the city to have that park and beautify the park. So I had to sort of create these internal systems and bring in the right people, and quite candidly, that's a seven-day-a-week kind of effort, and that's what we signed up for. That kind of brings me to my next question, crime and homelessness, the two most serious topics that uh, Seattle residents and Seattle voters have been thinking about over the last probably decade, maybe decade and a half. Um, one of your first moves was to start cleaning up some of these homeless encampments. You got a lot of criticism from homeless advocates about that, uh, that don't like, quote unquote, sweeps. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I respond to you the first the first piece is, you know, I took the time and I know this was unprecedented and I met with every single officer at every single precinct. And these are 3 a.m. meetings. These are 11 p.m. meetings to say we will always lead with compassion, with acting in a constitutional manner. We know our parameters and and I sort of put on the hat of, of coach and I said it's inhumane for people to live outside. Number one, that I'm not going to fight for their right to be cold to be hungry. And so we opened up all the data so people could see where people are living unhoused. And we talked to and funded social workers and other types of skill sets to make sure our approach under our one shell approach is, yes, we want to clean uh, the streets from litter and debris and get people housed. We want them to be safe for someone in a wheelchair to be able to go down a sidewalk, but we'll do with compassion. And quite frankly, I have to do that with that kind of confidence. And I've been in the human services and, and nonprofit world with my wife for a long time. And so I challenge anyone to say we'll do everything in a heavy-handed, mean-spirited approach. And that's how we did the Woodland Park removal. We do the outreach. We talk to people. We try to know them by name. And I meet with the people actually doing the work, right? I don't, I don't try to run this city just for my office. I'm out there in small businesses and parks and neighborhoods and communities, talking to the people on the ground floor, appreciating what they're doing, but also letting them know the manner which in which I want it done. One of the big criticisms, not so much of you or your office or the city of Seattle, but on, on the broader issue of homelessness, is the Regional Homelessness Authority. This was created several years ago. A lot of money has been spent on this, but at the same time, a lot of people aren't seeing a whole lot of results from the RHA. What do you say to that? Well, as much as I love to be the kind of person who can sit on the sidelines and be a critic, I cannot. And I am working, I think this afternoon, I have a meeting with the board, the governing committee, it's called. I'm meeting with the implementation board. I spoke with 
Mark Dolan's the CEO, and I have to make sure we have measurable outcomes that the city of Seattle's taxpayer dollars that I'm funding in the tune of 95 million, which was an increase that I, we're getting the bang for the buck. So we are work, doing that work now. I'm not going to defend it nor promote it. I'm going to do the hard work to make sure that the outcomes I want to see as mayor, the people want to see. They want people off the streets and house. It's as simple as that. In the politics, they don't have to be that complicated. I have to make sure that's done, and I'm going to establish the, the defined parameters or outcomes that we want to see, and we'll measure this group, this organization, against those. So what are Seattle voters getting for that $95 million that's being spent on the RHA? Well, it's funny you say that, because this afternoon we're both approving the budget and the five-year strategic plan, and so you may recall that uh, Mark Jones came out with a very aggressive downtown plan. So this is the first time the five-year strategic plan, which is going to, you know, they're t- they're touting the fact that we will, you know, have people housed. Another issue with politics at City Hall is dealing with the Seattle City Council. You were president of the Seattle City Council, as we've talked about. You were mayor for five days. You're mayor now for a, a year or so. At times, the not so much with you, but with previous mayors, the relationship has been toxic between the council and the mayor's office. How is your working relationship with them at the moment? Well, you know, I guess you'd have to ask them. I would describe it as extremely productive and collaborative. The issues I have with the council, I try to address them not in the media or in public. I literally go down to the second floor. I'm fond of the second floor often. I've worked there for 12 years. I literally go to their offices. Um, Historically, I know council members come to the seventh floor and meet in the the larger office. And, and I don't do that just as symbolic change. I do that as meaningful change because uh, you'll see my deputy mayors and members of my executive team routinely either go down to the floor to testify or talk to them. So I, I just try to keep it positive. And, you know, I uh, coming from an athletic background, when I look at the team, I have my executive team, but everyone's on the same team. And I have to, when I talk about one Seattle, it includes the council, it includes the city attorney's office, it includes the the municipal court system. So what we've done, which is a new approach, Jeff, is I've gone way out of my way to make sure that this machine in the city is sort of working well. And so Ann Davidson, the newly elected city attorney, she and I and her team, we had a long meeting yesterday. And so I'm trying to, that was the earlier part when I talked about building these systems. That's the work I have to do. So I think we have a good relationship. Um, And I know two recently announced that they're not running again. So uh, I'm just watching the newspaper and seeing how it plays out. And and I every time I, I hear about some statement, I just thank them for their service. Uh, yes, the two you mentioned, uh, Lisa Herbold and Deborah Juarez, both not running for re-election uh, when their terms are up. Rightly or wrongly, though, there is a perception that the city council is kind of running the show instead of the mayor's office. How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think, I think that would be a meritless conclusion. Um, they, they're running their part, but, you know, I don't take pride in who's running this, who's running that. And I, and I don't think anyone actually believes that. Uh, the, the city council has a strong role in city government. They pass the budget and they pass the laws. That is a critical role without implementation and executive and executive presence in sort of a coach, if you will, it's not going to get done. So I, if, if people want to have that, draw that conclusion, that's fine. But I don't think that's reality or the assumptions we work on. Finally, as we wrap up, what are your goals for this coming year? So moving forward, um, 
We're pretty excited about uh, how we created the unified care team work because that will allow us, again, people to house people and do it in a geographic manner so that the community and the, the neighborhoods can sort of know the teams we're working with in the city. We have the housing levy uh, where we're going to create thousands and thousands of much needed unit and housing. I'll put that on the ballot this year. Our climate legislation is bold. We received a international award from the Bluebird Foundation for the work we're doing on our on our specific Green New Deal. And then I issued an executive order that really fine tunes and even accelerates some of the work that we're going to do. Our place recruitment plan, having more officers here, our downtown revitalization plan, where we're taking community-based organizations, um, uh, mid-ambassadors, place officers, neighborhood residents all together in sort of a coffee corner kind of format so I could have activation downtown. We had some very exciting things in 2023. And the beauty is, is I think I positioned it for 2020 in, in 2022. Everything we did in 2022, changing the narrative, changing the um, how we go about things is, is for sustainable change. And I've said publicly, if I just did something that wasn't sustainable, even for example, on 12th and Jackson, um, if I said it's not sustainable, then it's all for not, it's just for a one day headline. So what I, I've been very methodical in making sure we can do things in a manner that improves the city for the long run. And that's, that's our vision. All right, Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Democrats and a surprising number of Republicans move to protect gay marriage. But does the bill actually do anything? When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula, and major legislation passed in the lame duck session this past week, the codification of the right to gay marriage. Joining me now is ABC News reporter Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and this is something that was really kind of a foregone conclusion. We had a lot of Republicans vote for this as well, but nevertheless, it's some landmark legislation. It is, and it's something that would have never had to have happened were it not for the fact that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade last summer, and Clarence Thomas decided to add uh, an extra opinion in there saying, you know, this is throwing Roe versus Wade out. Same logic we could use to throw out same-sex marriage. So uh, anyone who has a case, come on and bring it to us, and we'll go consider that and maybe do the same thing, which horrified most of America, especially folks who had been married for the last better part of a decade because of those decisions. And that rushed the House into passing the bill last summer with more than 40 Republicans joining. And then it got to the Senate, and it should have passed several months ago, but there were some senators running for re-election who were very nervous about voting yes for this thing, fearing they would lose their election. All that being said, this doesn't necessarily mean everyone is going to have the right to a same-sex or interracial marriage going forward, and here's why. The constitutional right to same-sex and interracial marriage is currently guaranteed only by U.S. Supreme Court precedent. No state can refuse marriage license based on sexual orientation. Now, if the Supreme Court were to overturn either of these precedents, the uh, Obergefell decision in 2015 or the decision legalizing interracial marriage, which was only back in 1967, that was the Loving case. If they overturn either one of those things, this uh, Respect for Marriage Act only acts as a limited safety net. It does not enshrine the right to same-sex or interracial marriage nationwide. 
It does not require states to perform same-sex and interracial marriages. States could be free to deny same-sex or interracial couple marriage license if the Supreme Court overturns this, just as they have done with abortion. But what it does say is that the federal government in all states must legally recognize same-sex and interracial marriages performed in places that they are legal. And the federal government has to do that. And this is important when it comes to federal benefits, when it comes to even seeing your spouse in the hospital. Uh, Many hospitals say, hey, if you're not married and you're not related, you can't even see the person that you love in the hospital. And this federal law overrides all that. I know it sounds very complicated, but it's not as simple as celebrating, hey, gay marriage and interracial marriage is now legal across the country. The Supreme Court made that so. The Supreme Court can also undo it. So you say this law does not enshrine, essentially, the right to gay marriage or interracial marriage under federal law. It just says those that have been married in one state, all states have to respect that. So why didn't the legislation go farther? They couldn't get that done. Uh, That's something that this was a compromise. This was a compromise to get enough Republicans on board to do it. The Supreme Court basically said that this was a constitutional issue, saying that uh, you couldn't deny a marriage license to them. But um, if the Supreme Court overrules that, then this law would only say that if you're already married in a same-sex or interracial uh, marriage, every state must recognize that, even if that particular state's laws say it's illegal. It's complex. It's not the greatest uh, solution, but it was a compromise that they had to pass. So what are we expecting to happen next? Do we know? Well, again, there's there's no case before the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court can't just on its own say, hey, you know, we don't like this. We're going to overturn it. They have to rule on a, on a dispute between two parties. So if something comes up in the future, that is a possibility, uh, although uh, Justice Thomas seem to be the only person uh, making this opinion. We didn't hear this from other justices, and one justice cannot overturn a ruling. You need the majority of the justices on the court to do that. What have we heard from Democrats and Republicans about the passage of this bill, or I guess more so supporters and detractors of this bill, because it was passed with bipartisan support? Well, there was a provision put in there for religious liberty that said that certain religious organizations did not have to recognize marriages in terms of benefits and such. Uh, And again, these are all compromises. You needed these compromises to get this overwhelming support for this here. Uh, But still, federally, the law requires federal government and all states to legally recognize these are federal and state governments, same-sex and interracial marriages performed in places where they are already legal. That is the the bottom line on this here. And it's a really important step for, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of couples who have married and don't want to have to go back and say, gee, I have to undo all this because the Supreme Court uh, conservative justices have decided to overthrow this here and they've thrown it back to states who are going to go back to archaic laws that are several hundred years old. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, emotional testimony on Capitol Hill about the alarming increase in hate crimes against LGBTQ people when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. 
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Kim Shepard. A very emotional hearing in Congress where survivors of the Club Q and Pulse nightclub shootings testified about the impacts of anti-gay and queer rhetoric and violence. James Slaw and his sister were wounded at Club Q. Hate rhetoric from politicians, religious leaders, and media outlets is at the root of the attacks like at Club Q, and it needs to stop now. ABC's M. Nguyen's been following today's hearing, and I understand that while this hearing was conducted before for a committee with 45 members, there were only a handful of them in the room to hear these stories. Yeah, that's right. Certainly a controversial topic. This is something that had been a long time coming. Representative Carolyn Maloney, the Democrat, who's also the chairwoman of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, she actually held this hearing trying to draw this direct link between the surge of anti-LGBTQ plus policies and the rise in violence and rhetoric against LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. And that's why we heard from survivors from Club Q as well as Pulse trying to give their testimony and how they felt on those very fateful days. Of course, we heard from, as you mentioned, James Slaw, but also Michael Anderson, who was the only Club Q bartender to to actually survive that shooting that happened last month. And he said he had to watch his friends die. He said he had to say goodbye, not knowing if he would survive himself. Certainly very emotional testimony. And he had a message for politicians. He said, quote, to the politicians and activists who accuse LGBTQ people of grooming children and being abusers, shame on you. And he says that, of course, after escalations of baseless smears from far-right Republicans portraying LGBTQ people as groomers targeting children. That's why we We've seen this rise in legislation from the Republican Party, and that's exactly why we're seeing this hearing today. Yeah, one of the things that was brought up was Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. Yeah, certainly. It's it's dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. It's actually called the Stop the Sexualization of Children's Act. And that, that was actually inspired by the, of course, controversial Florida law that we all know is Don't Say Gay. But there's also a federal version of this as well. So when we take a look at the federal law, it's a ban of instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade, of course, in Florida. But there's also a federal measure and it's sponsored by 33 Republicans. It's much broader. And it was definitely brought up because it's a point of of controversy here and contention. It's to prohibit the use of federal funds to develop, implement, facilitate, or fund any sexual oriented uh, program, event, or literature for children under the age of 10 and for other purposes. So very broad sense of kind of expanding on the don't say gay bill that we've seen out of Florida. Now, supporters say this legislation allows parents to determine when and if they want to introduce this LGBTQ topic to their children, uh, gender identity topic to their children. But critics say that this measure is a cruel attempt to stigmatize and marginalize LGBTQ people and their families. And that's exactly what we're hearing today from survivors. They were pushing legislators to stop this type of rhetoric. Because certainly we've heard from the FBI, as well as the Human Rights Campaign, many other organizations tracking the number of violent uh, attacks against the LGBTQ community um, since we've seen the Don't Say Gay gay bill. Um, And so uh, that's why this specifically was brought up, because uh, there have been certain organizations saying a number of bills uh, introduced as well as a uh, spike in violent attacks 
since this bill was introduced. Now, there have been hundreds of anti-hate bills introduced at the state level in the last year, but what about at the federal level? Right. So these bills on the federal level, they have either been introduced or written by Republicans, like, for instance, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. She had wanted to have this legislation passed that was to provide gender-affirming medical care um, to make sure that those providing gender-affirming medical care to minorities became a felony punishable by about 25 years in prison. So there have been legislations that have either been introduced or written by Republicans. But remember, the House and the Senate right now does have a Democratic majority. So ultimately, we're not going to see these bills signed at a federal level. The thing is, it could drive these these types of legislation on a state or local level. There have been more than 300 anti-LGBTQ bills that were introduced on a state level since last year. According to the Human Rights Campaign, this includes things from banning transgender athletes from sports, limiting how LGBTQ issues and identities can be talked about in schools, and as I mentioned, restricting access to gender-affirming care for transgender youth. So a number of bills are out there. Some of them in Republican states are passing. Again, on the federal level, though, Democrats still have control of the House and Senate. Of course, that's going to change just a little bit in the next Congress on January 3rd. Uh, Republicans will then have control of the House. And that's why this conversation is so critical to Democrats right now, because the timing of this is important because the priorities of, let's say, the Oversight Committee, which is the hearing we heard from today, those type of priorities will certainly shift in January when Republicans take control and run the, the hearings in the House. Kim. And all this discussion about anti-LGBTQ rhetoric is happening at a time when we're hearing about more really noisy, almost violent demonstrations in Texas at a drag show book reading. Yeah, that was also a point of contention that was brought up as well. A number of, of issues that we've seen across the nation, you know, there's actually been several Pride events, drag shows, uh, book readings that have been prominent targets of violence, of threats, of protests. We know from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation that they've said there's been at least 150 attacks on events this year. There's also been bomb threats against children's hospitals that offer treatment of transgender and non-binary patients. And so the FBI is showing data that violence based on sexual orientation has increased, uh, that nearly 8,000 reports of hate crimes, that of those nearly 8,000 reports of hate crimes, about 15% of them were targeted due to sexual orientation. And that's why this timing is so critical because there is a conversation to be had. But we did hear, I will mention from Republicans who of course Democrats were pointing uh, their fingers at because of this rise in, in violence against the LGBTQ plus community. But Republican lawmakers on this, this panel, including the ranking member were saying, hey, it's easier to blame Republicans than to discuss the full picture that violence is rising everywhere, that Democrats should take some responsibility for certain policies such as pushing, defunding the police, et cetera, so that they can have a more full and, and um, responsive uh, response to, to what's happening right now. So what are those Republicans saying about what is an appropriate response to that kind of violence? Well, we heard from the ranking member, Representative James Comer of Kentucky. He said these types of violent attacks are rising against all races, all ethnicities. He says we need to take a closer look at how to prevent uh, incidents like this from happening. He says that Democrats need to look at the policies that they're pushing, that they're talking about, such as I mentioned, defunding the police. And they 
the two groups need to work together to figure out how to prevent violent crime from happening. Um, so that's what he was particularly pushing at was that they needed to look at a, a larger scope rather than a more narrowed uh, scope when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community being targeted. It would seem, though, if you're looking at a wider scope, it's going to make it harder to really pinpoint specific actions that can be taken to address the problem. So did he give any specific examples of what he thinks can be done? There weren't specific examples. It was mostly a pushback from Democrats who were trying to point the finger at Republicans for, for introducing so many bills this year about LGBTQ uh, communities. And so that was his pushback that he that Democrats should not be only looking at specific bills that Republicans are passing, but rather look at more of the wider scope of what they could do to move forward. But yeah, no specifics uh, that were, were, were presented in this hearing. So what's next after today's hearing? So what's next is this committee, these particular members technically won't be uh, in the same standing point for January 3rd. As soon as January 3rd comes, Republicans will take over the oversight committee. They will have then uh, the say of what each hearing will be talking about. Um, And so we'll definitely see other types of topics in the oversight committee when it comes to the LGBTQ plus conversation. I mean, this was one of a kind that uh, there's a more targeted take on this topic with Democrats trying to tell Republicans to calm down with the LGBTQ plus bills. Um, and so we'll have to see if that even resonates. But really, this is going to be a bigger uh, impact, I believe, on the state level. ABC's Nguyen on the Northwest Newsline. That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. Meanwhile, a Washington state man has been jailed for allegedly threatening members of Congress. U.S. Attorney Nick Brown says 48-year-old Mark Leonetti of Longview made dozens, if not hundreds, of calls to various senators and representatives. The calls contain sometimes some very specific threats, oftentimes laced with racist or anti-Semitic language. Now, the DOJ won't identify which members of Congress were targeted for the death threats, citing their policy of not identifying victims. Leonetti faces up to five years in prison for each count if convicted. Now, we have to take another quick break, but when we come back, a new report seems to indicate the previous administration ignored warning signs about COVID when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. A new report finds former President Donald Trump ignored the warnings about COVID-19 from the intelligence community in the earliest days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Shane Harris is covering this for the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Shane, we've already seen reports that uh, the former president downplayed the warnings that he received from health experts, but the intelligence angle is new. Tell me about who put this report together and what they found. Well, this was put together by staff for the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the two committees in Congress that has oversight of the intelligence agencies. Uh, And what they found was that beginning in late January of 2020, U.S. intelligence agencies actually were starting to produce a number of of reports that increased uh, in alarm about the spread of the virus uh, and ultimately predicting that it could tip into a pandemic. Uh, And this information was conveyed to President Trump's uh, aides. It was put into presidential briefings that he would have been briefed on. But uh, they found that it did not reflect uh, uh, the uh, that his statements publicly did not reflect what they call the increasingly stark warnings that were coursing through intelligence channels at that time. Within this report, do we get a sense of what kind of warnings the intelligence community was trying to get across or or whether they had a solid handle on what was about to unfold? 
Yeah, it really what it amounts to is a lot of these intelligence analysts were reading public health reports and a lot of publicly accessible data uh, and were essentially saying that this, you know, if you put it in layman's terms, this looks bad, it looks like it's getting worse, and it seems like the government of China is not being transparent in how bad the outbreak actually is, which is hindering the response. And it's notable that this was information that was coming largely from public sources. The report goes on at some length to say that the intelligence community, while doing what they thought was very good analysis, wasn't really using covert or clandestine sources of its own information. It wasn't trying to you know, eavesdrop on Chinese officials or use human sources in China. Really, these analysts were reading public health data and, and crafting uh, some really some, some early warning kind of alerts and messages to officials saying it looks like this is going to become a global health crisis. And they were doing that as early as late January and into early February. When I speak with uh, other reporters at The Washington Post that, that focus more on the healthcare aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic and the, and the warnings that could have come out, there are a lot of changes that the CDC, FDA, NIH, or other health agencies could make for future pandemics. But what about the intelligence agency? Does does this report make recommendations? It does make a number of recommendations. One of the things that the, the aides found, we should say these were Democratic staff that wrote the report, although it was a bipartisan investigation, uh, is to, to designate a new center in the intelligence community with responsibility for global health security. And this is not necessarily a new recommendation. A number of people have said the intelligence community, because it's meant to provide early warning to government officials about all kinds of threats, should be focused on pandemics. And that has been sort of a, a known idea that the committee found ultimately the intelligence community had not followed up on. Uh, and they also wanted to see more resources put into an agency most people have probably never heard of called the National Center for Medical Intelligence, which is a part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And what they do is they provide this kind of open source analysis on health threats because, of course, they are looking out for threats to the military, to military personnel, to combat forces deployed overseas. The, the committee staff actually found that this agency uh, performed quite well and was among some of the first people providing some of the really strong warnings and indications that the virus that was spreading in China was likely to become a pandemic. It's a really interesting dive into the intelligence community's role in the pandemic and the warnings ahead of the height of the disease. You can find it online at WashingtonPost.com from Shane Harris. That's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Size. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Elon Musk with another controversial move using Twitter to silence his critics. When the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Once again, here's Kim Shepard. The Twitterverse is up in arms once again after the latest move by new owner Elon Musk. ABC's Andy Fields on the Northwest Newsline. And Andy, what did he do now? Well, the Twitterverse's arms are getting very tired. What did he do now was ban uh, a number of legitimate journalists from CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, because he wasn't happy that they were reporting about this Twitter handle that he had banned personally called Elon Jet that basically tracked the movements of his personal private jet. He says that's doxing, that's putting his life in risk, and he's going to ban anyone who dares to talk about it. Well, this is the same person who said we're not going to ban anything that would uh, block free speech and freedom of the press. Now, of course, it's important to remember that free speech and freedom of the press has nothing to do with Twitter. Twitter is owned by Elon Musk. He can ban anything he wants. It's his playground. It's his sandbox. 
Freedom of the press has to do with the government banning people. That's what the Constitution says they can't do. But Elon Musk is free to ban whoever he wants. The problem is, is, is the hypocrisy of him saying, you know, we're going to have free speech for everyone. And then if something makes him mad, he's going to ban it. Uh, that's why people are upset about this today. And uh, there are other governments that are more restrictive than the United States. And some of them are considering banning Twitter, which would not be a good thing for Elon Musk and this giant $44 billion investment he's made. And there's other issues here. Certainly, he's now going to face regulatory scrutiny in Congress. Congress can and does have the power to regulate some private business. But the bigger issue is he's got one giant contract with the United States government. In fact, uh, SpaceX, his company that is ferrying rockets to the space station and beyond, uh, is totally dependent on federal government contracts. And if he runs afoul of regulators here or they think he's doing something they don't like, he could end up losing billions of dollars in business there. So uh, his actions may indeed have some consequences. It just may not have any consequences when it comes to Twitter. Interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about the possibility that folks could just be, you know, no longer interested in using that platform and maybe moving over to Mastodon or or one of these others that's popping up. Some people are doing that. The problem is those other platforms are not as polished, not as easy to use, not as easy to navigate as Twitter. What has been surprising is that some massive company like Google or Facebook that knows social media and could gear up their own version of Twitter very quickly hasn't done so already. This seems to be a golden opportunity with so many people who are disaffected and unhappy with the way that Elon Musk has changed things and is running things over at Twitter. ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest Newsline. That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week. <laughs>